Hey everyone, welcome to the Business Alabama podcast from Business Alabama Magazine. I'm Alec Harvey, Executive Editor of Business Alabama Magazine, and my guest today is Chloe Cook, Executive Director of Birmingham's Sidewalk Film Festival. On this episode, Chloe talks about her 15 years at the helm of Sidewalk, including opening a cinema in downtown Birmingham and keeping the organization viable during the pandemic. Please join me as I talk to Chloe Cook on the Business Alabama podcast. Chloe Cook, thanks for joining me on the Business Alabama podcast today. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Can we start with uh, your elevator pitch of who you are for those listeners who happen not to know who you are, where where you grew up, where you went to college, leading up to Sidewalk? Yeah, of course. So I was born in Anniston, Alabama, and spent the first nine years of life in Talladega, Alabama. Very short stint in Hoover, then a move to Pell City, where I completed middle and high school. And then I went to Auburn University to get my bachelor in communication and moved to Birmingham for a job and have been here ever since um, in Birmingham, Alabama since 2000. And I've been at Sidewalk for 15 of those 23 years. How did that start? Did you start as a volunteer? Were you a fan first or did you jump right in and, and start leading? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great question. I worked for another arts nonprofit organization in town called the Birmingham Music Club. And my boss at the time, Webb Robertson, was a member of the sidewalk board. And he and his wife were going to be visiting, you know, some other community, town, whatever, the weekend of the festival. And he offered me his passes. And this was really like maybe my, maybe I've been in Birmingham 18 months, something like that. So I took his passes and went, you know, just as a audience member to the festival and really fell in love with the event and thought it was such a great way to showcase what was happening at the time in downtown, but also like what the potential for our downtown was. Because keep in mind, this was, I think it was 2001. And so I became an audience member at that time. And then in 2000 nine, uh, someone that I had worked with also through the Birmingham Music Club who did their bookkeeping and accounting work, called me at the job that I had at the time and said, there's a job opening at Sidewalk uh, Film Festival that I think you would be perfect for. And I said, I don't know anything about making movies. And she said, that's perfect. They don't want somebody who fancies themselves a filmmaker. And I said, oh, well, okay, you know, I'll think about it. And she said, okay, and we got off the phone and then like a week went by and she called me back and said, I know you didn't submit your resume and you really need to submit your resume. This is the perfect job for you. And I was like, you know, Gail, goodness, like, why would you say that? And she was like, well, I mean, you know, the event and you know, the arts and you know, the nonprofit sector and they need somebody that, you know, is detail oriented and administratively, you know, sort of focused and. I think that's you. Oh, okay, sure. And so I sent in a resume and thought, I will never hear another word about this. And then Alan Hunter, who was the board president at the time, called me or maybe emailed me, I don't remember which, and asked me if I'd come in to talk to him. And I did. And then he had me interview with about five other board members at the time. 
And then they offered me the job, much to my own disbelief. And was that the executive director job? Is that how you started it? Yourself? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, 29 and, you know, didn't know any better. And here you are. And here uh, I am. And probably yeah. still don't know any better, right? In many ways, that's right. Um, you mentioned I, Alan Hunter, Chloe. Can you uh-huh. talk about a little bit about the founding of Sidewalk before you got there? I know that yeah, he was one of, of the founders. So we're celebrating our 25th year of the festival in August of 2023. And the festival was founded um, sort of officially registered with the state of Alabama um, Secretary of State, you know, to go through that process with the Articles of Corporation and all that sort of thing in November of 1998. And that was actually Wayne Franklin and Kelly McCall at the time who became Kelly McCall Franklin and then Eric Jambor. And those three individuals, you know, really put the blood, sweat and tears into the founding of the organization and did all of the like heavy lifting of the nonprofit you know, establishment with the federal government and, you know, everything that really formalized this concept into a real organization. And they all three remained really involved with the organization for a number of years, you know, after its founding. And I don't remember, I've been told different versions of the story, but I don't remember who actually sort of brought Alan to the table with with Eric and and Wayne and Kelly, but somebody did. And Alan actually served as the first board president for the organization. And Eric, one of the three founders, was the first director for the organization. And he was in that role, I believe, until 2007. I think that's right. Or maybe 2006. And then someone who had been working under Eric took over. Um, Her name's Catherine Fitzer. And she took over the executive director's role for, I think, 07 and 08. And then I was hired uh, May 1st of 09. Well, tell me about those early years. And I'm not talking about Sidewalk itself. I'm talking about your early years. What what was going on when you got there? What What did Sidewalk look like? Yeah. So we were, you know, an annual film festival that took place in Birmingham's Historic Theater District. And I was young. And... The organization in many ways was still pretty young. You know, it was that was its 11th year of a festival. I think that, you know, a lot of times that 10-year mark feels like such a milestone, and it really is. But for something that is brand new, I think that, you know, 10 years is, is about like a 10-year-old child. You know, you're not fully developed yet. You've got a lot of learning to do and a lot of maturing to do. And I really think that's a good sort of, way to think about the growth of the festival is that we were at year 10. We had experienced some growing pains. I think the founders were, and as was indicative of that moment in time, you know, it was very much like, how do we celebrate this indie film spirit in our backyard, in our community? And it's interesting to look back at some of the records we have of like community concern around that? What does this mean? We're going to have an independent film festival in downtown Birmingham. I don't know. Is it safe for our kids? I mean, it's some of it is really kind of wild. Some of the letters, you know, that we have and that sort of thing. So they were met with some, there was a little pushback. And I find that really interesting because now I think for the most part, we're really embraced um, by the larger community. 
So I think, you know, in those early years, they were trying to figure out not only how to do what we do, like all the logistics of it, but also how to have it fit into our community in a way that would make it sustainable um, as an organization um, and as an event that, that, that the community could count on happening year over year. And so by the time I arrived, a lot of the how was in place, but there was still a lot of work to do to sort of find our people, find our audience that and grow it yeah. in a way that would sustain, you know, the institution. And I think that's partially why the board at that time was looking for somebody with a marketing and public relations background rather than like a filmmaking background so that I could focus more on ticket sales numbers increasing and general brand awareness growing and that sort of thing. And that is really where, you know, I put my energy because it is the thing that I knew. You know, I didn't know the first thing about running a film festival. I mean, just, you know, I didn't. I'd hosted events and parties and have been a part of many arts organizations. But what we do here, I always say to people is imagine planning 300 weddings for one, you know, 48 hour period. And that's really kind of what we're doing. We're renting a venue and we're staging the room and we're bringing in all the necessary equipment. And every filmmaker is the bride. And some of them are beautiful and lovely and wonderful. And others are a little bridezilla sometimes because things aren't going the way they want it to. And we've invited all these guests and they're all there and they have expectations and they want, you know, those expectations to be met. And it's all sort of happening on top of each other, you know, screening 350 films in 48 hours in 12 rooms simultaneously is no small feat. So there was, you know, we, and that's grown. I mean, we didn't start out that way. That right. is, you know, that's come about with time, but yeah, I mean, those early years for me, gosh, lots of learning in the moment, lots of trial by fire and lots of trying to take a step back from here's what we did last year, you know, and like looking at that and appreciating it, but saying like, do we have to keep doing it that way? Why do we do it that way? You know, is there real meaning attached to that choice because it aligns with our values as an organization or because it sort of is what makes the festival the festival? Or do we just do it that way over and over because that's what we've been doing? And is that really the extent of the reasoning behind it? So it was for me early on, lots of asking questions and exploring the why behind all the different choices. And I think that was good for the organization to have somebody from the outside come in at that moment and to stick with my 10 year old child thing is, you know, you're, you're about to be a tween. You're getting into some, you're, you're going to be growing towards that teenage time of life, which can be tumultuous and, and there's a huge developmental period. And that's really what happened with sidewalk, you know, around 2017 is when we decided we'd open the, the cinema space or that we wanted to. So it all just sort of, as we were growing and maturing, the the city was growing and maturing around us. You know, the downtown area was, and it felt like we needed a permanent, you know, home. And so it all just, you know, it, it grew to that. Well, I do want to talk about the permanent home, and we'll talk about that. In yeah, a sure. Um, and I'll let you get by with the Bridezilla comment without asking you to name names, because I guess you won't, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, um, never kiss until. 
Can you talk a little bit about how the festival has evolved over the years, maybe some of the highlights and and then some of the challenges? I'm sure that uh, 2020 was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To be honest with you, every year, and I think this is true for most arts nonprofits in Birmingham, in Alabama, across the country, perhaps, you know, every year has different challenges. And a lot of times for many arts nonprofits, you know, those challenges are really rooted in their financials. And when I took over at Sidewalk, there was a fair amount of institutional debt that we needed to work our way out of. And there were, I would say, pretty big financial challenges just attached with, you know, with the event and people's expectations for what the event would be and what it would look like and how it would function and what it would offer. You know, those grow, those expectations grow, but people's willingness to pay more for those higher expectations, often, you know, those things don't align. The sort of financial challenges have been there throughout. Um, When I started, you know, part of what I experienced every day was somebody in, you know, sort of corporate Birmingham saying to me, what's sidewalk? What is it? How did, where does it happen? Do you show the movies on the sidewalk? Like what's the, what's the deal? So we were doing lots and lots and lots of going out and talking to people and just educating them about who we were and what we did and the value that we brought to the community and why having an event like ours mattered. And it frankly was not always an easy thing to convince people of. And then if you can't do that, you certainly can't get somebody to get their checkbook out and help support, you know, the work that you're doing. And so I think those have been just some, that's been sort of a generic challenge at various times in the organization's lifespan. I think it's also been the source of, you know, of growth for us. I remember, gosh, that very first year, our budget goal for ticket sales in 2009, I think was $36,000 for the whole like year, you know, of, of any sort of program we were going to offer, including the festival. And so I just thought, well, if I do that, you know, I'm a hero. And we did, I think, 62000 And I thought, well, there will be a ticker tape parade down third Avenue in my honor. Look at this magic, you know, but of course that's not what happened. Um, I had a handful of board members that were very thrilled, but part of what it did for me was show me sort of the possibility of the event. You know, we weren't even close to what we could do in terms of ticket sales without changing a lot about the event itself. Just being smart about how we spent our marketing dollars, taking advantage of as many public relations opportunities as we could possibly manage, and just using every chance we had to put our name out. We did tons and tons and tons of grassroots, you know, marketing. We would hand out flyers outside of, you know, the Alabama Theater summer movie series. You know, we still do a lot of that. I think people expect us to do that, but we do a lot more sort of traditional you know, advertising on digital and print ads and all those sorts of things. But anyway, yeah, I mean, we've, the festival's grown a lot in terms of evolution. Pre-COVID, we were 
doing just over $200,000 in festival ticket sales from that initial budget goal in 09 of like 36,000. So I knew there was room for growth there. And with that growth meant that we could grow what we were offering. We could grow the number of venues that we were using. We could grow the number of films that we were screening. We could improve the technology that we're playing those films with. We could host bigger parties. We could have a bigger tent, so to speak. And then, of course, COVID happened um, on the heels of what had been our most successful festival to date. 2019 was a great, great festival year. We got the keys to the cinema space like the Monday of festival week. And so we were scrambling to try to, you know, make use of the space within the context of the festival in some way. And and then we opened the cinema, you know, that fall. And then the following spring, we closed. And by all accounts, we were the first business uh, to close its doors as a result of COVID. And part of that is because we were watching what was happening, you know, with our peer organizations in other cities, like on the West Coast and Seattle and Portland and it was really wrecking havoc on those communities and our and our film festival partners and, and cinema partners in those cities were shuttering and laying people off and putting their staff on furlough. And we were nervous, as anybody would be, that that was going to happen to us. And we couldn't convince ourselves it wasn't going to make it to Alabama. And then South by Southwest and Austin, Texas announced that they were going to cancel their event, which was supposed to happen like two or three days after that announcement, and it was really close. And then around that time, I had an employee who came into work and was fine. And then by mid-afternoon, they were coughing. Oh, no. and they had a fever. And we had a sold-out event the next day. And I just thought, we can't be, this brand-new cinema space cannot be the the thing that's known as like the super spreader of this sort of somewhat unknown at the time health crisis. And so we decided we would close for two weeks, which I thought was like the craziest thing in the world. You know, we just opened. What do you mean? We're, you know, um, but we closed and then it became really clear really quickly that it was not going to be for only two weeks and that nobody really had any way of predicting how long it was going to be. And everything that I'd spent, what at the time felt like a decade working towards seemed like it was sort of crumbling out from under me. Then it was just, I don't know, we spent a day or two wallowing around in our sorrows. And then we did what we always do, which is figure out how to bring people together around film. And we were trying to figure out how to do that in a socially distanced world. So we were doing online screenings um, through a whole bunch of different distribution partners that started to make that, you know, a possibility. And it was really uh, like a weird technology challenge because each distributor had a different like platform right. for that. It wasn't like, Oh, go to our website and click play and you can watch these things. It was like, you know, create these accounts and it jumped through all these hoops. And anyway, but people were stuck at home and kind of willing to do it. And then we started doing curbside concessions. We would be masked up and gloved up and all those things. People could order concessions online and we would deliver hot buttered popcorn to their car window on the street. And I mean, we were just doing anything we could to stay relevant and to stay in people's minds and to generate a little bit of revenue. And then we started doing a drive-in series 
and we did the first one uh, downtown near our building, but there was such demand for it. The parking lot couldn't accommodate the people that wanted to participate. So then we partnered with the summit and they basically gave us access to a part of their parking lot where the, the business that was adjacent to that parking lot was closed. And we did a drive-in series, I think for eight weeks at the summit, you know, they were all sold out and nobody got out of their car, you know, so they could come with their own, you know, household and, or alone, whatever their situation was and watch a movie and get out of the house, but not be breaking any of the rules of sort of quarantine. And the whole time we were trying to figure out like, are things going to be back to normal by August? <laughs> of course, the answer was no. no, no, they weren't. And so we pivoted and we did our festival in 2020 at the Grand River uh, drive-in. And we used all four screens at the drive-in for a full week. And obviously that, you know, cut down on the number of films because it doesn't get dark in Alabama until about, you know, 830 in August. Um so are dark enough to project a film and have decent, you know, quality picture. But yeah, we, we just, we pivoted at every opportunity and tried to remain, you know, a part of the community as best as we could. And then after that year's festival, we reopened the cinema uh, in September. We reopened with Tenant, and we let 12 people in at a time. And so you, there would be like one employee that, you know, you had to buy your ticket online in advance. You would check your temperature at the door and scan your ticket through one of those plexiglass screens and then, you know, sell you a popcorn and send you into the theater to sit like 20 feet away from one of the other 11 people. But people showed up and came to the cinema. And so that was, you know, encouraging and depressing at the same time. I mean, you know, to, to be down here with 12 people is not really the, the energy we had hoped for when we were building the space out. But anyway, we slowly worked back up to, to full capacity. And I mean, when I say slowly, I mean really slowly. We were back at full capacity in May of 2022. Chloe, we mentioned the cinema a couple of times. Can we talk, can we talk specifically about it? Because I'm sure that that was a a huge move for y'all. Can you tell me how that came about and what you're trying to do with it? Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much fun sort of little anecdotes and history there. Um, As the legend goes, there were a group of people in the late nineties who wanted to have a film festival happen in Birmingham. And at the same time, there was a separate group of people who wanted Birmingham to have an independent movie theater. And somebody, I don't know who, brought those two groups together. And they all were going to work together, you know, as one group and make all their dreams come true. And then ultimately, through whatever efforts, decided that maybe downtown Birmingham wasn't quite ready for an independent movie theater and that they would focus efforts on the festival. And so this dream of a sort of sidewalk cinema has been around as long as the organization has. And there were a couple different versions of business plans, you know, associated with that over the years and some drawings of what a space might look like. And I think there was talk at one point of building it in Homewood instead of in downtown Birmingham. Anyway, all those things sort of predate me. But those are the stories, you know, that I've been told. Um, and I've seen some evidence of that work. But we had just been really from 09 until 2016 or so. I think we were 
just really focused on stabilizing the institution and growing the audience and getting the festival to a healthy place. And we, in addition to the festival, for years and years, we did a variety of classes for filmmakers and networking events and that sort of thing. And we've maintained that all this time. But then in 2017, a friend of mine, really a friend of my co-workers at the time, approached me and said, hey, you know, I bought this building on Third Avenue and I've had it for a while and I don't really know what I want to do with it or I haven't known what I wanted to do with it. But I've been thinking that like a single screen movie theater might be really cool. You know, Birmingham doesn't have an indie movie theater. And he was like, do you think people will be interested? And I said, oh, yes. I think we're very interested. And in fact, I have a business plan for that. And he was like, what? You know, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, yeah. So we set up a time to meet again and then probably a third time. And then I engaged our board president at the time, Michelle Foreman, in the conversation to say, you know, like, is this something we want to really explore? Like, do we think the time is right? And anyway, so we were looking at this building on Third Avenue North that is on the same block as the Alabama Theater and the Lyric Theater. And we had Neil Davis of Davis Architects, who was on our board at the time, agree that he would, you know, spec out a little bit of, you know, the space and kind of put his thoughts on how you might utilize that building as a theater. And he first did a hand, you know, drawn sketch, and then that was elevated to, you know, real drawings and then we were, you know, having conversations about would we own two floors of the building and buy them? And that meant we'd have to sell the other two floors and who would we want to have as neighbors? And, you know, just sort of it, it was like a snowball rolling downhill. And Michelle said that she thought we should bring Jeffrey Bayer by the space to just get his opinion of the real estate and what we were thinking. And, you know, his longtime real estate person here in Birmingham with uh, what used to be Bayer Properties, she invited him down and we did a little short tour of the space and showed him Neil's ideas. I think he said something akin to, this looks great, but I think it would be even better at the Pazitz building, which of course was a building that Bayer Properties was redeveloping. And we came with him over to the Pazitz where we're located and you know, he showed us the space and our first thought was like, oh, there's not enough height clearance, you know, in this basement uh, for a movie theater. So that's not going to work. But thanks, you know, for thinking of us. And he's nothing if, if not persistent. And, you know, so we took that as an opportunity to bring Neil, the architect, back in. And he looked at the space and said, well, you know, maybe you could do this here and this there and you might be able to get the right height clearance and we'll have to come in and get all the measurements and really see what's possible. And then, you know, we ultimately made the decision that we would be in this building at the Pazitz because we thought it would be a really great compliment. Uh, there's a food hall in the Pazitz. There are, you know, 12 or so different food stalls, the big central bar, there's an outside courtyard, there's, you know, an attached parking garage, there's professional, you know, management of the building, all of these things that weren't going to exist if we bought two floors of this vacant building on Third Avenue. And so that's the choice that we made. And we then set out to 
get quotes and have real drawings done and figure out how much it would cost to build the space and to set up operations and really get things going. And we raised just under $5 million and we built out a 12,000 square foot two screen movie theater with concession stand, full bar, two nice lounge areas, a classroom, and then all of our offices for year round operations are here as well. And we're right under the Pazitz Food Hall. And if you subtract the two years that COVID basically shut down the world, um, we've been thrilled to be here in this building and able to show, you know, movies every day to our community. And then obviously to use the space for the festival as well. And not just independent movies. Y'all are showing some first run movies, aren't you? Yeah. So we're doing, we're doing a lot of things here at the cinema you know, what an independent movie theater does and how it functions really varies depending on the community it serves. And so for the Birmingham metro area, we're the only independent movie theater screen in the metro. You've got AMCs and Regals, you know, those kinds of things like larger chain movie theaters, and they all serve a a purpose in the community as well. Um, And then you've got facilities like the Alabama Theater, which was originally a movie palace, but now is more commonly used for live events. You know, they have comedians and concerts and all those sorts of things. And then they do a summer film series and a holiday film series, but they're not in the business of showing movies every day. And that's in some ways, it's sort of sad for the community that they've been without this resource for so long. But it's great for us in many ways, because it allows us to really play around with programming and figure out where, you know, we have an audience to match with the types of movies that we're playing. And so, yes, we do independent film as often as possible. And that's a big part of our mission. And those independent films, though, are often first run independent films. They're just indie films rather than big studio pictures. But then we also sometimes are playing bigger studio films. So like right now we have Barbie on the screen. And when we talked about internally, you know, is that something we want to do? Barbie's going to be playing at every other movie theater. Why here? Why? How do we justify it being at Sidewalk? And the answer there was pretty easy because the director, Greta Gerwig, is a Sidewalk alum. She's been to our festival and we love to support the filmmakers who have shared their early works with us through our festival call for entries process and Greta fell into that category. And so it felt like an easy decision for us to make and has been a great success here at the cinema. And we did lots of fun, you know, custom things for the screenings of Barbie, you know, a whole cocktail menu that's themed along with the film. And we've got a giant larger than life Barbie box for customers to get in and have their picture taken. And we've done, we have pink, kettle corn right now that's Barbie themed. I mean, you know, we, we really get to go all out and be creative and make it not just a movie watching experience, but the opportunity for people to kind of have those other fun elements that people might not want to go to all the effort for at home. So like the pink kettle corn and the Malibu Barbie cocktails and the Barbie box is probably a lot for you to make happen in your living room, but you can come and do it here with us. So that's an example of like, a a brand new movie, a first run from a big distributor like Warner Brothers. But then playing alongside it last weekend, we had Jaws. And so we try to have a little something for everybody. And we obviously can't do that at all times because we only have two screens. 
But we also do lots of lobby programming. Fun things happen in our lobby all the time. So we do movie trivia once a month. We do soundtrack karaoke once a month. Um, we have networking nights for filmmakers. We host a book and film club at the cinema. So people, essentially, we mail them a book and then they come in and they watch the film adaptation of it. And then we have a whole, you know, like book club style conversation after the screening here in the cinema. So we really do a lot of different and fun things and try to create events around the films that we're playing. But yeah, we do documentary film screenings, you know, rep screenings, classic films. Um, We have a film appreciation series called uh, Sidewalk 101 that really focuses on films that people consider to be like a part of the canon you know, this is, you have to see these 100 films to understand the history of the art form. Um, so we do that as a series on a year-round basis. Yeah, lots of different things all over the map, it seems. Well, I do want to get to this year's festival, but you mentioned Greta Gerwig. And there yeah. others, and the, the one that comes to mind, obviously, right now is Daniel Scheinert. Can you talk about him and, yeah. and maybe some of the alumni of, of Sidewalk? Yeah, of course. So you mentioned Daniel Scheinert. He was a student here in uh, Birmingham at the um, International Baccalaureate School at Shades Valley. And as a high school student, started participating in sidewalk scrambles. Those are our 48-hour short filmmaking competitions where different teams of people show up all at the same time at the appointed place, and they are given some requirements for their short film. And then they spend 48 hours coming up with their concept, writing the script, shooting everything, editing, and turning that short back in. Generally, they're five minutes or less. And he was doing that as a high school student with friends and sometimes winning. I was about to say, did he win, I hope? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes (laughs) winning. And then he went to college in Boston and then I think initially was directing music videos and then, you know, was working in feature link film and with a directing partner also named Daniel. So they're collectively known as Daniels. And then of course, you know, this past year they swept the independent spirit awards and pretty much did the same thing at the Academy Awards. And we had a huge Academy Award, you know, watch party here at the cinema on both screens and in the lobby. And it was the movie equivalent of like watching the Super Bowl. I mean, everybody here was just absolutely floored and cheering for him and so excited. He's such a sweet, sweet guy and somebody that we've maintained a relationship with since he was a high school student. Um, He's come back and when he was in school himself, was back here in college. I mean, he came back to Birmingham and did some summer workshops with us. He's been at the festival many times over the years um, with different projects that he's been working on and then was here. I think the last time he was here was 2019 uh, with a film and the festival. And then of course, 2020 was a weird year and people weren't traveling and really the same thing in 21. And then this past year we had his film, everything everywhere play at the cinema for two weeks initially. And then we had to bring it back for another two weeks. And then we um, brought it back again, right before uh, the Academy Awards. So people that didn't have a chance to see it theatrically initially could come and see it in the theater before, you know, the awards themselves. So it's been really fun to celebrate a hometown hero like that uh, here at the cinema, for sure. Well, especially somebody who truly was involved with the festival, didn't just pass through. He, oh, yeah. he really was involved. 
So. Yeah, he's he's been uh, he's been a part of the sidewalk family for you know fifteen years, or actually longer than that, twenty years, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So, so I know what's top of mind for you right now is this year's festival, which is happening in yeah. just a few weeks. Can you give That's me the right. overview, of the number of films, uh, venues? Yeah. Yeah. So we're screening more than three hundred films in 12 venues all over the same 48 hour period. And so really the festival, we do four preview nights. So that starts on Monday, August the 21st, and that's our Alabama film preview night. And that's here at the sidewalk cinema this year. That's a block of short films made by all different Alabama filmmakers. Then on Tuesday, we have our life and Liberty civil and human rights preview night. And because of our, you know, geographic location in Birmingham, Alabama, such a central part of the um, civil rights movement, we've been doing this Life and Liberty series for, well, the entire time I've been here and longer. So I, I should know this, but maybe 17 or 18 years now. So the Life and Liberty Spotlight Night on Tuesday, that's a feature film this year, um, rather than a block of shorts. Then Wednesday is our Shout LGBTQ uh, preview night where we highlight an LGBTQ filmmaker or story or both. And then Thursday night is our Black Lens preview night, where we are highlighting the work of Black filmmakers. And so all four of those happen at Sidewalk Cinema with doors opening at 5, film starting at 7. There's a little happy hour networking thing between 5 and 7. And then on Friday, August the 25th, that's our big opening night sort of celebration for fest weekend we're at the alabama theater 2200 seat beautifully restored you know paramount movie palace from the late 20s and this year we'll be playing art for everybody which is a documentary about the artist thomas kincaid and all the controversy around said artist and you know lots of debate about whether or not thomas kincaid was a quote real artist or not, and was he too commercialized, and all these things, and he had a much richer, interesting storyline than I think anybody could possibly imagine, like him as just an individual person. So that's our opening night film this year that we're excited about, and we do a huge after party on Third Avenue North immediately following the film. And then Saturday morning, we open the doors to those 12 screening venues all roughly at the same time, and we keep movies playing pretty much nonstop until about midnight Saturday night. And then we kick it back off the next day about 10 o'clock in the morning, again, in all 12 of those venues. And we generally try to end things on Sunday night by about 1030. Most folks anyway, have to get back to work the next day. And I guess we should say that um, the name sidewalk basically refers to the footprint. It's basically walkable when you get down. That's right. So the footprint is walkable, and that was something that the founders, I think, really wanted to emphasize. A lot of festivals around the time that Sidewalk was being formed were renting, you know, like they would take eight screens at a 12-screen multiplex, and the whole festival would happen inside one movie theater. They really liked the sort of Sundance model of we're hosting this in our community, and we want to take advantage of all the spaces and places in the community that are relatively close together. And for us, we're really fortunate because as we've been hosting our event, the theater district has gotten bigger and better. And so this year will be 
in our own cinema space, which is a two screen to say complex feels that's a little of an exaggeration, but it's a two screen, you know, movie theater. Then we have the Alabama theater, the Lyric theater. We are in the Crest building ballroom, which is the location that used to be the Red Mountain theater cabaret theater. And then of course, Red Mountain built a brand new, beautiful campus, just a few blocks South of us. And now that space that was their cabaret has been renovated uh, for private events and that sort of thing. So we're renting that for this year's festival. And then we will be in the contemporary worship space at First Church. We're at the Alabama School of Fine Arts in three venues. We're at the Birmingham Museum of Art in the Steiner Auditorium. And then we're at the BJCC this year for the first time in Sidewalk's history. Um, and we're going to be in the theater at the BJCC as well as in their forum building theater. So we've got two spaces down there. And I'm guessing it's not Chloe Cook watching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies and whittling it down to 300. Uh, Absolutely not. No. So we have a programming team that works with us on a year-round basis. Two of those people work with us year-round to program everything that happens at the cinema. And then those two people plus five others work to program the festival every year. So we have an open call for entries process which means that any filmmaker from anywhere can submit their film for consideration to the festival. And then they do that in a couple different categories. You know, is it a feature film or is it a short film? Is it episodic? Is it a music video? Are they an Alabama filmmaker or not an Alabama filmmaker? Is it a feature or a documentary? I mean, is it a narrative or a documentary? So then to match those categories, we have screening committees. And the screening committees are volunteers. There are about 65 people who have access to these films uh, well in advance of the festival, and they all commit to watching a certain number of those films, writing reviews, submitting those reviews, giving each film a score, and then we are tabulating all the scores, we're reading all their comments and reviews, and really, I think the hard work for our programming team comes when, you know, let's say eight people watch the film. And four people absolutely loved it. And they gave the film a 100. And four people hated it. And they gave the film a zero. The film, when you just do the math, you know, it gets a 50. Well, that's an F. Well, an F would mean not in the festival. But four people loved it. So why do they love it? And then we have to really dig into why did these people who loved it love it? Why did the people who really hated it hate it? And what does the programming team think about it? And everybody on our programming team either has an education in film, critical studies, or they are filmmakers themselves or were filmmakers in a different part of, you know, life, um, different time of life rather. And so, you know, they really put a lot of thought and energy into making sure that all the films are given an equal chance, that all the films are reviewed um, by multiple people, that if there are any of those kinds of little flukes of scoring, where, you know, an F doesn't really mean this film failed in every way. It just means that it didn't only find the people that love it. It found some people that disliked it and sorting all that out and really trying to put together a well-rounded program of films because our festival doesn't only focus on, you know, one type of film or one type of filmmaker. We really want the festival to provide a wide variety of films that entertain, that inform, that educate, that challenge, 
And to do that, you know, we feel like we've got to represent all the different facets of the, the city that we call home. That's something that I think has changed or slowly evolved over the years. And that's reflected in who serves on the screening committee and who serves on the programming team as well. So people outside of Birmingham have noticed the festival too, correct? Yes. We've been lucky over the years to get the attention of a wide variety of media outlets. We've been in Time Magazine. We've been in USA Today. We've been in the Washington Post. We've been in IndieWire and Movie Maker, all in sort of top 10 or top 25 or top 50 lists, sort of rating and ranking different film festivals. And most recently, we were listed as one of the top 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. So that's an industry publication for, you know, filmmakers. And we're right there beside, you know, Sundance and South by Southwest and some international festivals as well that are really spectacular. And so it's always thrilling to think that the work that we do here in Birmingham is meaningful to people far outside of the bounds of the city limits. And I just want, you know, our Alabama you know, neighbors to know that this great resource is right in their backyard and that we're a really accessible festival. Our price point is nowhere near what you would spend to go to some of the other festivals on those lists. And Birmingham is just such a great place to have an event like this. You know, we've got such a supportive community and I really think that's part of what has made the festival stand out. When filmmakers come here, they're often coming to Birmingham and to Alabama for the very first time because of the festival and they come with preconceived notions about our state and our city and the festival really shows them what a great warm hospitable community we live in and what really spectacular people we have you know living here we have about 500 volunteers that help make the festival happen every year and they really i would say most of those volunteers really show up and and they do that volunteer work because they're proud to call Birmingham home. They're proud to call Alabama home and they want to showcase their city and make sure that everybody that's coming to visit from other communities is, you know, interacting with really kind, nice folks. And they can say that about themselves. So that's what, what gets them involved initially. There are some people that volunteer because they love movies, but a lot of folks are really volunteering at the festival because they just want, the city to shine and they think they can add to that. And I really think it's a big part of what sets, you know, sidewalk apart from other festivals is the city where we take place. And tickets are still available, correct? Absolutely. So yes, tickets are on sale um, and they will remain on sale through fest weekend. Um, And I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and I know anything can happen, but what do you think we'd be talking about in two or three years if we were having this conversation? Well, you know, COVID really brought about a lot of changes to our industry, um, to the, to the film industry, to the entertainment industry as a whole. One of the things that happened as a result of COVID is a real removal of what used to be considered a a sort of mandatory theatrical window. So, you know, a distributor would release a film and they were going to give that film whatever period of time, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, six months of this is in theaters only time. And then it's going to go, you know, to whatever streaming service or, you know, whatever HBO or, you know, those kinds of things. 
And then, you know, after that, it would be on DVD or Blu-ray, whatever. And then those windows have been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And then when COVID happened and nobody could go to the movies, the solution was, well, there just won't be a theatrical window anymore because there are no theaters operating. And that was not a temporary change. You know, that's pretty much, you know, I think the, the distributors are still trying to figure out what the best strategy is. And it really seems to vary film to film, whether or not they release something to the theaters the same day they're going to put it, you know, on their streaming service at home, or if they're going to give a gap in between the two and how long that gap is, you know, there's no gold standard at this point. And so I think there will be many changes over the next couple of years as the streaming universe really has, it's, it's blossomed almost, you know, to the extent that I think it's possible for it to blossom. There are so many different streaming options. And now people who were thrilled to sort of cut the cable and get the streaming service. Now they have 14 streaming services and it's, you know, basically like the same cost as cable because you're paying for all these different things and you've got to log in on all these different places. So, you know, I, I don't know what will happen with that, but I do think that we're going to see that change, you know, in the next, I would say five years, I think the streaming universe is going to look a lot different than it does now. I don't know what it's going to look like, but different than today. And I think those changes will have an impact on how movie theaters operate. You know, I can tell you just from the small amount of time that we were open as a cinema before COVID versus today, in the fall of 19 and the early spring of 20, if we put a film on the screen like Jaws, we were getting eight people, maybe 20 people coming out for that. And we have, you know, 93 seat theaters. So, you know, we were that was fine. That was okay. But it was not packing the house. And if we had a new release, which at the time would have been something like Uncut Gems or The Lighthouse, we were packing the house for these titles because people couldn't see them at home. Right. They could not see them at home yet. They would eventually be able to, but they couldn't at that moment. Now, what we see is that people are more interested in coming out and watching Jaws in a room with other people who really, really love Jaws. <laughs> and those people exist. And it's sort of like, Every beloved movie has its audience of super fans and they like to meet each other and know each other and experience it together. And so like for our jaw screening a weekend ago, we had one person in the middle of the theater start singing along near the end of the film. Well, everybody in the room knew the song and they all began singing along and they continued singing until the scene was over. And I had four or five different people over the next 24 hours message me directly to say, that's the coolest experience I've ever had watching any movie ever. I've never seen something like that happen spontaneously. Everybody there was so excited to be seeing this movie. And, you know, that made it so fun and, you know, really enjoyable. And I felt like those were my people. And like, that kind of experience of watching a movie that gives you a sense of community is what I think no streaming service or no home, you know, VOD service of any kind can ever really provide. And so it's been interesting to see how we went from there are eight people that want to watch Jaws to there are as more people that want to watch Jaws than we have seats for in this short window of time. 
And I think that that camaraderie that happens around a shared object of affection, it's harder to replicate that in a, in a private setting. Um, And then because a lot of the new releases go straight to streaming services, not everyone, but a lot of them, you know, people are like, well, well, I'll watch this new film at home on Friday night instead of going to the movie theater and parking, and you know, getting dressed and getting out of my pajamas or, you know, whatever the things are. Um, but then you, the exception to that is something like Barbie, you know, Barbie and, and Oppenheimer releasing on the same day, who would have thunk it, as they say, but record box office and still going. We've sold out every single screening of Barbie that we've had here at the cinema since we opened it on the 20th of July. Well, Chloe, I like to end these conversations with a few questions I, I call business casual. And usually they're, sure. a little more, they're a little more pop culture oriented, although this whole sure. conversation has been kind of pop culture oriented. <laughs> That's um, right. What's the last movie? I'm going to ask you about movies, of course. What's okay. the last movie you saw in a theater? Barbie. Barbie. <laughs> Twice. Um, enough said about, about that, right? Um, <laughs> do you listen to podcasts? Can you tell me what you've been listening to? Yeah, I do. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love, um, how I built this with Guy Raz, really spectacular. Um, in my opinion, I always love hearing, you know, how businesses and organizations got their start and who's really responsible for that. Sidewalk, of course, has a podcast and I do listen to that. I'm not on it. Thank goodness. But our creative team uh, does a podcast every week um, called Side Talks. And so I do listen to that. But then, gosh, I'm such a, you know, stereotypical lady I hear, which is, you know, all the all the middle aged ladies love to listen to the true crime podcast. And I guess I'm no exception. Um, So I've listened to Suspect, Unfinished. Just say you're sorry from Smokescreen. I've listened to both seasons of White Lies and loved both of those. And that's two local guys, um, Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley, who are friends. And Andy uh, is a filmmaker as well. So we've got double connections there. NPR's Life Kit. I could go on and on with podcasts. Maybe I should have a podcast festival. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, you mentioned all the streaming services. Um, what's the last TV series you binged? I couldn't truly binge it because Apple TV does a more traditional weekly drop, but I watched Silo on Apple TV as quickly as they would put the episodes out. And I've since rewatched it all in true binge fashion. So I watched them all week by week and then sat down pretty much and watched them all back to back, which is like eight hours and I should be embarrassed. And then of course, it ended with a cliffhanger, and it's based on a book series. So I immediately bought all three of the books in the series and have now read all of them as well so that I know what happens because I couldn't stand the idea of waiting. Um, and finally, Chloe, I'm sure that in your position, you've been given a lot of advice over the years. Is there a, a piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice that, that stick out to you that you've been given? The best piece of advice that I think I've ever received that's specific to like an arts nonprofit is was early, early on. I was told by someone who had just finished reading a book that I can't remember the name of that the arts nonprofit needs to make its cuts where people can't see. 
And I said, I don't, I don't really know what you mean, you know, exactly. And they said, well, you never want to, you don't want to cut out the nutcracker because you've got less money. You've got to like find another way, you know, if you're buy cheaper toilet paper, you know, for the bathrooms, you've got to like cut off the coffee service for the staff. Like you trim everything you can possibly trim behind the scenes because nobody is going to get excited about you doing less, about you offering less to the customer. And if you don't have customers, you can't get sponsors. And, you know, all these things get so tied together. And so we really, really took that to heart with the festival for so many years. It was, do we really have to have eight walkie-talkies? Could we just rent six walkie-talkies and make it work? You know, we were looking at every dime that we were spending as a, is this going to make it harder for us, but not allow the customer to see that it was hard? You know, is it going to still let us put on a great show, even if we are, you know, paying the price on the, on the back end? And obviously you don't, you don't make those cuts if you don't have to. You don't want to make a cut to anything if you don't absolutely have to. But every time we're looking at budget cuts, we always start with the things that we think the customer won't see or know about or that the sponsors won't see or know about so that we're still putting on a great show. So I really took that to heart. I'm not sure, you know, how fully applicable it is across all businesses, but I would say certainly for retail and restaurant and all those things, it's like the food still got to be great at the restaurant. Even if your numbers aren't doing what you want them to do, you've got to, you pay the price somewhere else. Personally, I would say the advice that I've been trying to take to heart, although probably not doing all that well, is following the rule that no is a complete sentence. Women in particular and Southerners generally, you know, there's a lot of energy and effort put on raising us to all be polite and not make other people uncomfortable. And sometimes telling somebody no makes them uncomfortable and you think it's better by explaining why you can't do the thing they want you to do. And you really don't have to do that. Just say no and and move on if no is really where your heart is. And I struggle there. So I've been I've been trying to follow that advice uh, as often as I can when it's applicable to the situation. Well, I'm thrilled you said yes to do this today, and I can't. Me too. Th- me too. I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. My thanks to Chloe Cook of Sidewalk Film Festival, and to you, the listener, for joining me today on the Business Alabama podcast. You can find out more about the festival and all things Sidewalk at SidewalkFest.com. Until next time, this is Alec Harvey. Find more from Business Alabama in our monthly magazine and online at BusinessAlabama.com.